Amen. You could do that a little louder. All God's people said. Amen. All right, there we go. Give everybody a, a virtual high five. Don't actually walk around the room or anything like that. But from a distance, just give a big high five. If you're in your living room, you're with family, you can give them an actual high five. If you're in a backyard, do a, a distanced high five. Do whatever you got to do. But let's just remember that we are here on a Sunday morning to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Right? You know that, as I've been walking through this series, Why Church, that, that Easter is not just like this once a year kind of thing that we're like walking up to progressively and on the calendar it says, oh, Jesus rose on this. The church shifted from the Sabbath, which was Saturday, to meeting on Sunday because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so every single Sunday, we celebrate the, birth, the resurrection of our Savior. I'm going to start my timer. <laughs> Folks, we've been working through this series asking a simple question, and, and I think it's a question that we actually don't ask enough. Why do we do this? Why church? Like, why do we do this in the first place? Why did Jesus create his church? In the book of Acts, which we've been looking at, why did Jesus do this in the first place? What is the point of what we are doing here today? What's the point of tuning in online? What's the point of getting up on a Sunday morning and making your way to this building that we call the church, which it's actually just a building, right? In North America, I really believe, and I've said this already, but I'm just going to recap it a little bit. The North American church specifically has lost its understanding of why the church exists. Many in, in today attend church because they, they really see it as a, a good place to have a good social life. I'm going to go to church because I want to see my friends. I want to sing with my friends. I want to corporately worship with my friends. But corporate worship in itself actually isn't in Scripture. So why? What, what's the point of what we're doing? Are we here to have a good social life, to meet with our friends, to, to, to like be entertained by the music and by the, the speaking? Are, are we here to meet our own personal spiritual needs and to be lifted up and refreshed? Many would say that. Are we here because it's a hospital for the sick? Do we come to church purely to learn the Bible? Now, many of you are probably tracking going, yeah, yeah, we, we come to do all of those things. And we do come to do all of those things. But not one of those things is the central meaning behind the question, why church? All of these things, folks, are part of what can happen within a church community, but none of them are the reason that the church actually exists. The core motivation, as I shared with you a few weeks ago, the core motivation of why church is actually really, really simple and amazingly profound. Jesus died 
and now he lives. That's the core motivation. That's what you see in the book of Acts is these early Christians that are just so deeply convinced and convicted that Jesus died and now he's alive that they walked away from everything. It wasn't like, well, I think I might attend church today. I, you know, maybe I can fit it into my Sunday or my Monday, or I'll just watch you folks that are watching us now on a Wednesday by yourself. You're not doing church because church can't be done by yourself. The fundamental core motivation is that we, as disciples of Jesus Christ, are so deeply convinced and convicted that Jesus died and now he lives. That's why we celebrate Easter every single Sunday. It's the gathering of the people who believe in that core thing, but believe in it so deeply, folks, and I want to challenge you with this, believe in it so deeply that that simple fact that Jesus died and he's alive drives their entire lives. Every decision they make, every move they make when they're in the farmer's field and they're farming, when they're at work, on their computers, whatever it may be in our current context, their entire lives are driven by this simple fact that Jesus died and now he's alive. We see this saturated without the, throughout the early Christian church. They literally, folks, gave up everything to follow the resurrection. It's like Peter goes home to his wife because Peter was married. And Peter goes home to his wife. He's like, honey, like, we're, we're leaving. She's like, what? Like, well, I like our house. Like, I, I like our life the way that our life is. And he's like, no, he's alive. He's alive, honey. He's alive. We got to go. We got things that we have to do because Jesus died and now he's alive. I need you, church, to understand just how deeply convicted the early church was in this core belief. As a matter of fact, that is the central belief of the church. And so if you don't believe that Jesus died and he's now alive, you're not Christian. The resurrection became the central reason for God's people to gather. The central reason of why they gathered. If you look at John, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. John chapter 20, we hear the apostle John testify this. John chapter 20, starting at verse 19. It says, on the evening of the first day of the week, Sunday, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Isn't that interesting? Here's Jewish people with their doors locked in fear of their own people. Okay? So this is the state of where things are. Jewish people with the doors locked in fear of the Jewish leaders. It says, Jesus came and stood among them and said, so this is the resurrection. He's alive. And listen to what Jesus says to them as he appears to them. This is important. Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. That would indicate doubt, wouldn't it? Because he's there and he's spoken. 
And they're like, whoa, right? Like, imagine this moment, like, woo, wait a minute, like, you were dead, man, and like, now he's alive. We heard this, the ladies told us, but like, back in this time, we didn't believe any ladies. And so then he has to actually show them. He has to literally show them his hands and his side, and the disciples at that moment were overjoyed. So isn't that interesting? We're not trusting the testimony of others. We need this physical proof. And the disciples were the same. So don't feel bad about that. The disciples were the same as us. They had doubts. They struggled with believing. And so Jesus just showed them. And I actually believe that when you ask Jesus, he will show you too. The concept of peace. I said that that was important. And so I want to just rest there for a minute. Folks, Jesus calls his church, the body of Christ, to be people who show the world a radical peace through the way we live. So when Jesus says, peace be with you, it's a very profound uh, way of greeting them, right? We just graze over it, but it has a deeper meaning as we're going to see today. It, It literally... We are people of peace and the world should see the peace of Christ living in us. It's a radical peace in our lives. It becomes part of our witness. Like we run like, you know, in the past of the North American church, like, right, like come to an evangelism class. We need to teach you how to evangelize. Jesus actually figured all that out, right? Like Jesus was like, my disciples don't even actually really, I had to show them my wounds. They didn't even really believe it was me when I stood in front of them. Do you really think that Jesus is like, I'm just going to leave the church to figure out how to be my witness in the world. They'll figure it out eventually. Like, honestly, we think that God in the flesh just left us be. No, when we're convicted that he was dead and now he's alive and we live with our lives saturated in his peace, the world notices. You see, our lives, they matter a lot in how we go about living them. We live with his peace because this is what sets us apart. You see, the world doesn't have peace in their hearts. But those of us with the Holy Spirit living in us, as we're going to see, have been given the peace of Christ. The church are to be people who live in such a way that it is so evident that we are at peace with death and that we are at peace with life here on earth in a radical way that only the Holy Spirit can bring. The peace that can only be given to us through the Holy Spirit is actually, folks, what moves us toward what God calls us to as the church. In the, in the Bible, it's very late in the Bible that we're actually called Christians. This whole kind of thing of like, I'm a, I'm a Christian um, you know, the Bible calls me to be a Christian. The Bible doesn't actually ever call you to be a Christian. The label Christian was a label that pagans gave to us to try to describe who we were, that we are people who follow this person named Christ. 
Christians, Christ-like. But the Bible doesn't call us to Christianity. It doesn't call us to be Christians. And thank God for that. Because the whole word Christian is just such a loaded word in our world today. Thank goodness that the Bible actually calls us to be disciples. I really think today there's a a difference between, or there can be a difference between a Christian and a disciple. I think lots of people claim Christianity, but not all of the people claiming Christianity are actually disciples. We're called not just to be Christians, but to be disciples of Jesus, the one who lives, the resurrected one who lives to this very day. And there's a difference between the two. Just being a Christian is kind of like just being Jewish. Like just being Jewish was like, okay, I'll give my life to this one God and I'll follow this one system and none of it will actually impact who I am. I'll go, I'll attend, I'll come to the gathering, I'll do all of that because I got lots of friends there and I enjoy the music or maybe I don't, it depends. Do they sing hymns or do they sing choruses? That's gonna depend on whether I attend. None of that makes you a disciple. That's just, you're just claiming Christianity. Just like some claimed Judaism, but we're never transformed. You see, we know of God and we do these religious things that that God tells us to do, but if it doesn't transform us into his likeness, if it doesn't bring us an inner peace that only the Holy Spirit can, then there's a possibility that you're just Christian and not a disciple. A disciple is one who becomes like the one that they follow. They literally take on the the likeness of the rabbi by dedicating their lives to following their teacher and the things that he taught. As pastors, I I wish that some of you could attend a meeting that myself and Pastor Tamil have because we are always racking our brains to say, how do we help people become deeper, more dedicated disciples to Jesus Christ? How do we help people be transformed into the likeness of his image? Not just on Sunday, but like seven days a week, that their whole lives are saturated in the fact that Jesus lives. How do we do this? And so we, we develop all kinds of things, don't we? We put them out online. We say like, here's some spiritual formation practices that you can do in order to draw closer to God, in order to experience him more and develop a closeness. And we utilize scripture and we utilize quiet and we utilize reflection. And we, we build all of these resources and like three people use them. But you know why that is? Because me and Pastor Tamil cannot turn you into disciples. It's not actually possible. We, We can't turn you into disciples. We can purely just help you along the way, but it's actually up to you of whether you choose to press into the resources that we feel the Lord led us to give to you. But once again... God knows better than us, doesn't he? 
Could you, could you imagine? Like, he didn't just leave the church up to us. He didn't just leave the church up to the pastors either. He didn't say, Pastor Jeff, the church's discipleship is solely in your hands. God knows better. And as we read a few weeks ago, in Acts chapter 2, God gives people what they need to become his church, his disciples. And for his disciples to then become a witness to the world because that's the mandate that he gave the church. You know that Jesus like never said like gather, care for one another, don't let other people in, sing songs you like, like become an exclusive group of people who do exclusive things on a Sunday morning. Jesus actually said, here's my Holy Spirit living in you now. We're going to talk about that. Which empowers you to be convicted of your sins and to begin the process of discipleship. To be transformed into my likeness and to be my witnesses to the world. God knows better than us. And he gave us the Holy Spirit and the power and presence of the Holy Spirit living in us. None of Jesus' disciples, folks, understood what was really truly going on until this moment in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, verse 4, listen to what it says. So all the, what I preached two weeks ago, the rushing wind, the fire, you know, the refining fire that I talked about. And listen to what it says in verse four, all of them, not just a few, not just who pressed in and tried real hard, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as who enabled them? The Spirit. That's interesting. That throws some of the theology out there out the window, doesn't it? As the Spirit enables, the Holy Spirit fills a person and in this context, they begin to speak in other tongues. All of them are filled with the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues. What on earth does this mean? This, this Acts chapter 2 was the biggest hang-up in my early Christianity. It's actually what drove me to begin to obsessively study the Bible. Because I would hear things and I'd be like, that seems weird. Like, and I was willing to like accept weird things. I mean, my first experience back at church after experiencing the Lutheran church in grade eight was a Pentecostal church. And the first Pentecostal church I ever attended, like people were speaking in tongues, the preachers running around, like yelling and hollering. I'm like, what is going on? The only thing that kept me there was they had drums and a pretty girl. So Acts chapter two, I was like, I need to know what this means because for some reason, God wants me to understand this because it's actually the key to how I'm gonna move forward in my faith. And so I began obsessively uh, seeking from God what Acts chapter two meant. 
What on earth is happening here? Do we all need to speak in tongues? Do we not all need to speak in tongues? What exactly kind of tongues is it? In scripture, there's actually three different kinds of tongues. In Acts chapter two, it is the kind of tongues where they're speaking in another unknown language. So I failed French three times. Like other than we and non, hear that French accent? That's it, I'm done. I think I got bonjour. And then apparently, uh, puis-je aller à la salle de bain is not actually asking to go to the bathroom. But I thought it was. The teacher would just say, yes, go. But it's probably because I was a brat and she wanted me out of the class. I failed French miserably. I cannot speak a lick of French. And in this moment, it would be like the spirit fills me and I speak perfect French. And someone in here, anybody in here speak French well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. You would hear me testifying about the goodness of God. So I wouldn't be speaking in French about like, you know, the Toronto Maple Leafs. I wouldn't be speaking in French about like, hey, look at me. I'm speaking in French. Isn't this amazing? God's empowering me to be awesome. This would be me speaking in French, testifying about the goodness of God. And John would completely, he'd be like, holy cow, Pastor Jeff is speaking in French and he failed French. What is happening here? Well, there's actually two extremely important things that are happening on Pentecost. So I'm not going to dig too deep this week into the different facets of tongues. We'll get into that another day. I want to specifically focus on Acts chapter 2. And so there's two things, extremely important things that are happening on Pentecost, and I really need to get moving. It's amazing when you go live, eh, how all of a sudden I'm a 50-minute preacher again. A few weeks ago, we talked about the irony or the lack thereof of what God was doing during this festival where they, the Jewish people, the festival of Pentecost or the festival of weeks, where they're celebrating God moving historically in their lives. Essentially, God providing for their people in the past. That's the festival that they're celebrating, God moving, God providing. And this is exactly what God is doing in Acts chapter 2. He's doing something completely new, something that has never been done before. There's two very specific things, and the first one is simply this. God is reversing what he did in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. So let's jump over to Genesis chapter 11, all the way back to Genesis, very first book of the Bible. In chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. All right, the whole world had one language and a common speech. This is after the fall. Sin is saturating the world right now, and God is beginning the process of redemption. And it says, as people moved eastward, just any Bible geeks in here, uh, if you're ever interested, the concept of moving eastward actually has meaning to it. We'll get into it another day, but after sin happens and we're sent out from the garden, we don't go like northeast, or we don't go north, south, or west, we move eastwardly away from the garden. That's just a teaser. We'll let you in on the insights behind that someday. So they move eastward. They found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Then they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They, They used brick 
instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Now listen to what it says. So that, so here's their whole motivation behind this. We may make a name for ourselves. Note to self. Anytime your motive of doing anything is to make a name for yourself, God's not happy. So here's what happens. It says, otherwise we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Like I could see this board meeting happening, right? Like if we don't make a name for ourselves, folks, if we don't like make our mark here on earth, if we don't kind of have some historical name for who we are, well, then this is what's going to happen. We're going to be scattered. Like this isn't going to be good. So this is the logical thing to do. How many people know that humanity, and you might know this from the news, humanity will often do things in the moment that they think is the right thing to do, but it's actually sin. Like I'm sure a lot of the things that are in the news today, there was people who thought they were doing the right thing. But the Lord came down, it says in verse five, to see the city and the tower and pe- that the people were building. And the Lord said, uh, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us, there's the Trinitarian language, Let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So that happened in Genesis chapter 11. And when we launch all the way up to Acts chapter 2, do you see how much Bible's there? There's a lot of Bible there. He changes it. He changes it and he bridges the gap. If we read Acts chapter 2 verse 5, so after the Spirit has enabled them, now they were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. People have traveled from all over the world at this time to gather for Pentecost. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came running in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. So all of these scattered people have gathered for the Pentecost festival, but they all speak their own native tongue. And I can just imagine what would have happened. We tend to hang out with the people that we can communicate with, right? And so at Pentecost, rather than one Jewish people, you would have had sects of Jewish people based on the language that they spoke. And so Pentecost was not very unified in the Jewish festival. This changed everything because here is this group of people speaking where everybody can understand. Stand. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? See, they should only speak the language that the Galileans spoke. Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? On the day of Pentecost, this is super important for you to understand, God reverses Babel. He bridged the gap between the nations to make one people. 
the children of God. God's people are now one in Christ. We're not scattered like we are. We're all over the world, right? But we're not scattered. We have one God, one Jesus, one nation, one language. It's hard for us to grasp because that's not what we see, right? But this is what he's doing in Pentecost. When they spoke in tongues, each of them spoke the language that someone else was familiar with. And the key piece is, is what they spoke. This is what God wants you to hear. He doesn't want you to hear that you're, you're, you have a lot of friends at church or that you enjoy the potlucks and different things like that. When God speaks through another, when God unifies the language, what are we talking about? The wonders of God. This new thing, it's the beginning and I want you to hear me, folks. The beginning of the beautiful messiness of God's people. Now, I know, I know people in the past have preached like we can't be messy, but all I see saturated through the book of Acts is a gigantic mess. And you, you merge different cultures together and you say, hey, you're all one in Christ. Like that's messy, isn't it? You merge different, different like structural religious systems together, right? Like each different people had their cultures and they went about worshiping God in different ways. And now we're merging all of this together. It's a beautiful messiness of God's people united in spirit under the message of Jesus being alive. No more divide. God's wonders are now available to everyone. Everyone can clearly understand the wonders of God because they're hearing them for themselves. We're all one in Christ through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Why does he say Holy Spirit? Why not just spirit? Holy means set apart. So the spirit dwelling in us is the Holy Spirit, the one who is set apart, and that's the set apartness of the Holy Church. We're not holy because we're like awesome. That's ridiculous. You totally don't understand what holy means. We're not holy because we're without sin, because in actuality, we're all a bunch of horrible sinners. We're holy because the Spirit lives in us and God sees us through the lens of Jesus Christ, but we're also set apart, not to live outside of culture, but to witness to it by them seeing the peace of God living in us. This oneness in Christ, you're going to hear a lot about this. If you ever read anything about the Apostle Paul, you're going to hear a lot about oneness, not separatedness, not, not Calvary versus Evergreen or, or Evergreen versus Emmanuel or CRC versus Anabaptist. Or, like, it's none of that. That's just us. There's a oneness because we have this one set-apart spirit living in us. You see, the Jews were set apart people. That didn't go well. So what does this mean? To be his set apart people is to be on his mission. Not our mission, but God's mission for God's people, which in this moment he has created us to be God's people, those with the spirit living in them. 
You see, the day of Pentecost opens the door for all people to have access to God's mission for his church to show the world his peace living in us. The church, folks, breaks down the boundaries of culture and breaks down the boundaries of language by becoming inclusive rather than exclusive. That's a key thing that's happening here. You have the exclusive Jews. The, 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 the Pharisees were a little wild. This is why the Sadducees hated the Pharisees, because the Pharisees actually became evangelistic. They actually invited, and you see this in, in Acts, they actually invited, uh, you see it in John chapter 20 as well, uh, pagans to become Jews. And the Sadducees who ran the temple were like, no way, you can't do that, that's horrible. Like none of that ever happens, right? We never sit in the pew saying, no way, you can't do that, that's horrible. They invited others in, but it was unheard of. They were exclusive. The church is now inclusive because his peace is living in us. The church breaks down the boundaries of culture and language. Think about how messy this is and think about how this is God's beautiful mess. It's God's beautiful mess mess because he's breaking down the walls of hostility between us breaking down the walls of culture there is no black there is no white there is no brown there is no male there is no female there is no different cultures there's just a oneness in christ through the power and presence of the holy spirit folks the church is inclusive not exclusive and the minute you make the church exclusive you have now made church optional and church in scripture is not an option if you believe that jesus christ died and he lives again it's a beautiful mess isn't it to welcome our brothers and sisters in Christ no matter where they're from, no matter what language they speak, no matter what challenges they may have with sin, we welcome them in to the body of Christ. It's a beautiful mess. Now there's another thing that God does and it's really profound in the midst of all of this, but you have to understand Jewish way of thinking. Not just Jewish, actually, the pagans often, not all pagans, depending on the gods that they worshipped, but many of the pagans actually thought this way. In traditional Judaism and in some pagan traditions, it was common theology, they had a very common theology about body and spirit. Essentially, to simplify it, I could get in, I could do a whole sermon series just on this topic. That's how in-depth it actually is. But I'm going to just really simplify it for you because I have three minutes left. Here it is. Body, bad. Body, bad. Anything to do with the flesh, they would say. So the flesh in the New Testament is very different than the flesh in the Old Testament. The flesh in the Old Testament literally means body. The flesh in the New Testament means the way of the world. Okay? So body, bad, sinful, horrible. Like there was things called Gnosticism that would like teach you to like cut a body part off and things like that. We hate the body because the body is actually what causes sin. It causes sexual sins. It causes all these different things. So body is bad, but spirit is good, right? Body bad, spirit good. 
This was actually foundational to how they lived, how they thought, and how they framed their theological thinking. And on the day of Pentecost, God does something absolutely insane that throws that theology out the window. Peter gives his first sermon testifying that Jesus was dead, now he's alive, and the people respond to this craziness that's happening. And what do they say after Peter's sermons? I'm not going to get into all of that, but what, what do they say? They say, like, what do we do? So Peter has just said, you know, this Jesus who you killed, he's now alive. He was the Messiah. He's the one we're to follow. And they're like, okay, like they're cut to the throat, right? Like cut to the heart, it says. And so they say, what shall we do? Great question. I get it all the time. What what do we do? What's next? Listen to Peter's response. Acts chapter two, verse 38. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, what what shall we do? Verse 38 says, Peter replied and said this, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They're told to repent of their sins. How on earth do they even recognize their sins? It's the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit's working on you before he lives in you. And then when he lives in you, he's constantly pushing you toward Jesus. But you have a choice. You can repent or you can dig in. And often, even in the Christian church, even in the midst of our discipleship and our good intentions, we prefer the digging in rather than the repenting because repentance means a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of action. And so if you're not actually changing, you're digging in. It's not actual repentance. I feel bad about this, but right, repentance actually means literal change, change in the way that you think change in your actions. So we prefer to to dig in. And then he says, be baptized in the name of Jesus. He says, John baptized with water, but I'm going to baptize people with the Holy Spirit. And so we want the Holy Spirit living in us. And the pathway to that is to repent to become aware of your sins. Lord, I'm a sinner. I can't do it without you. I need you. God is literally merging spirit and body together. Right? Body bad. Spirit can't live in bad. Yes, it can. He lived in Jesus in human form. He said he actually was pleased to dwell in that human body. At Pentecost, he not just cancels out Babel, he merges body and spirit together because now the Holy Spirit is living in our bodies, making us God's temple where God dwells. So, Our bodies and our spirit are connected to one another. 
Now, people say to me, but what about when I die? That's right. We go into the intermediate state as we await our new body in the new heaven and the new earth. He never disconnects it. That's important to understand, and a lot of people's theology is really messed up on that. Body and spirit together, and it's good. Now, we don't know what those new bodies look like. I hope I have abs, right? Like, I'm, I'm kind of hoping my new, my new body in the new heaven and new earth does not really look like the body that I have not done a good job at taking care of. But I would argue that Scripture would say that you should since it's the temple of God. And in Old Testament times, what does the temple mean? Where God dwells. Now, this is all new and all extremely radical. All of the religions at some time, they separated this body and the spirit and God is just making this oneness happen again. And this oneness needs to just permeate your theology. We are one. We are inclusive, not exclusive. And God at Pentecost overcomes all of these things. We're called as disciples of Jesus, as his church, to be diverse people. Black, white, brown, male, female, whatever. None of that separates us. We're God's people, okay? God's people. Not, I, I'm, I'm avoiding the language of family because we have messed that up by using the word family because we have such a skewed North American view of what family actually is. To us, family is like buy a house, build a fence, stay away from everybody else, and just care for family. That's not, he's, he's turning us into God's people and God's people are a national people. We are across the world. We are black, we are white, we are brown, we are male, we are female, we are all kinds of things. As we are one in Christ. We're God's people called out, called apart, set aside to show the world God's goodness by living our lives saturated in his peace. In the peace that only the Holy Spirit can bring, this peace that sets us apart from the world, no one else but someone who has the Spirit living in them can experience the peace of Jesus Christ. God's mission for the church is for his people to be people of peace, people who accept others unconditionally and don't judge others by their tongue or their nationality, the color of their skin, or the traditions that they come from. Because on the day of Pentecost, God knocked down all of these barriers. So why on earth do we insist of putting them back up? Why would we make the church exclusive again when God in Acts chapter 2 made it inclusive? Tamil can join me up here. We are a group, folks, of messy people. I want to emphasize that. We are a group of messy people across the world learning to be like Christ, living in the forgiveness and grace that he offers us under the power of the Holy Spirit. So far in this series, that's 
the church. And the why? Because he died and he rose again. He lives and he has made us one.